All right, just a few announcements. Just a reminder that we have the picnic coming up on the 19th, not this Saturday, but the next Saturday. So weather looks promising. Who knows? Only God knows. We have sign-up sheets and maps in the fellowship hall, and please RSVP so we know how to plan for the food and uh, adults and kids, and bring, please bring chairs and bug spray and any other things you'd like. Also, a reminder to check in the bulletin to find out how to sign up for church emails and to make sure that you know you can get the information when we need to cancel, uh, cancel Bible class. Uh, which is sometimes sometimes necessary. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can each make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, enjoying our fellowship with Him. And after a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess sin if necessary, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that we can always come to you in prayer, that you are our rock, you provide the foundation, the stability for our lives, you give us the, your word that gives us stability in our thinking, and that when we face situations and circumstances that seem to be chaotic, that seem to threaten uh, stability, whether it's a personal stability or national stability, Father, we know that you are in control. And that our mission here as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and citizens of heaven is to take your word and to make that available to people around us, to talk to them, to ask them questions, get them thinking, to be a visible witness, but also a verbal witness so that people can learn uh, about Jesus Christ, that they can know precisely what the good news of the gospel is. And Father, that's the only hope we have for our nation. That's the only hope we have for our lives. That's the only way we can truly, uh, truly grow and mature as believers is to get into your word and let it get into our lives and transform our lives. Now, Father, as we study tonight on this important doctrine of confession, we pray that you'd help us to understand what's going on here in Psalm 51 and see how uh, you, your rich Uh, provision in scripture provides a way to recover from sin and to go forward and we pray this in Christ's name amen all right well you can open your bibles to psalm 51 and in the meantime i'm going to give you a warning we live in horrible times we live in times where we as christians are experiencing a target on our backs unlike anything that our ancestors in this country ever experienced. We have numerous groups that are extremely well-funded whose number one goal is to get the influence of Christianity and the Bible completely out of this country. There is a 
a resentment, a bitterness, a hostility, a, an anger directed towards Christians that we don't fathom. It's not just in this country. It's in Western civilization. It's happening all over Europe, and it is happening in Britain. I got an example. I didn't want to shift our focus on Sunday morning to this, but uh, I need to make you aware of this. What's going on in England and what goes on in Canada does not necessarily mean it's going to happen here, but, but the signs are there. I mean, they have both passed hate speech laws, and then we passed hate speech laws. We have too many people in the judiciary and legislature who think that we ought to have a one-world government model our laws and our practices after England. They forget that that's why we had uh, a war in 17, that started in 1775, is to get away from that. But So we see that these same trends are happening everywhere, and that's because we live in the devil's world, and the I believe we're getting close. I don't know how close. Could be another hundred years or more. Close to our Lord's return and the tribulation. But the stage is clearly being set. And just one example of that is what happened in England. Now, I want to preface this because there are many people who are listening to me who are in the workforce. You're working for some Fortune 500 company or you're working for some other maybe a global company, and there are all sorts of pressures from the governments involved to conform, especially to uh, LGBTQ practices and affirming and and um, validating their lifestyle. But now we've gone to a new level with this whole gender confusion issue and the multiple pronouns up to somewhere around 75 or 80 now. You can go out on the internet and find out how how they've done it. It's extremely confusing. But you have these corporations who are mandating, and governments that are mandating, that if you're going to work, if you're going to work for them, you have to use these various gender-confused pronouns. And not only that, but you may not know this, I think I informed you of this, but if you go to a state, uh, a state education institute in Texas, if you go to Texas A&M, considered to be a conservative school, or you go to UT, which is sometimes considered to be at the opposite end, and truly there is, there, there's not that much difference between them, so don't confuse yourselves. But if you go to any of these schools that are, are state-funded, then, and I knew this a year ago because we had a young lady in a family that listens all the time who matriculated last year at Texas A&M and went to their orientation, which was like a camp for a week or so. They were given their name tags, and they were to select from a number of different pronouns, not he, she, it, him, or her, okay, way beyond that. Uh, different pronouns that they wish to be, uh, wish people to use in referring to them. And this is everywhere, and it's in major corporations, it's everywhere. And this is a situation that happened in England. And according to One News Now article, after a Christian doctrine was forced out of his job in the United Kingdom for 
declining to use transgender pronouns, the Employment Tribunal, this is an agency out of established in the government to adjudicate these kinds of complaints in, uh, in the British government, the Employment Tribunal issued a ruling affirming the dismissal and declaring his biblical beliefs on human sexuality as, quote, incompatible with human dignity, unquote. So this is a government now in Britain that used to be the bulwark for uh, Protestant Christianity, and now the Bible uh, does not affirm human dignity at all. It is uh, incompatible with human dignity. So they've redefined human dignity now. I talk about this all the time, how paganism redefines all the terms. And so once those terms are redefined, then God becomes a bad guy, Christians become the bad guy, the Bible becomes this horrible, uh, horrible book. So this doctor, whose name is David McCarrith, has been practicing medicine for 26 years for the Brit uh, British National Health Service, and he was let go by the Department of Work and Pensions. And the ruling is a warning to all of the doctors who are Christians throughout UK that if they don't use the appropriate pronoun, then they're going to lose their jobs. Now, this is a foreshadowing of what happens in the tribulation period. In the tribulation period, you won't be able to buy, not, not you, because none of us will be here. We'll be raptured and gone. But anyone who is a believer, a tribulation believer, uh, will not be able to buy or sell or engage in any kind of economic activity or commerce, get food, uh, housing, anything, unless they take the mark of the beast. And this is just a foreshadowing. And so if you want to find out how you would do in the tribulation, then if you're working for a company and they start instituting policies where you have to use the preferred pronoun for somebody and you're met with the very real choice of whether you're going to keep having a job and a paycheck, pay your bills and feed your kids, or stand for the truth, then you're going to get just a taste of what it's going to be like in the tribulation. It'll be much, much worse than tribulation. But this is coming. And in fact, there was a teacher, there's a court case right now, where there was a teacher in a school district in Virginia that was fired because he or she, I don't remember which, refused to use the, quote, appropriate pronoun, unquote, because it violated their Christian belief, and they are now taking that school district to court. So this is coming to a school district near you, coming to an employer near you, and your children, your grandchildren, and maybe you are going to face this. And this is where the rubber meets the road. And the only thing that we have going for us is what we learn from Scripture. You've heard me and you've heard other pastors for the last 30, 40, 50 years warn that this time was coming. And it's on the horizon that we need to get the Word into our lives. There may come a time in the next 10 years when all those Bibles on your shelf get confiscated, and the only thing you're going to have is what you've memorized in your soul. There may come a time when the only teaching from the Word you have is what you've learned and what you've memorized by coming to Bible class and listening online four, five, six hours a week or more, because this is our prep time. 
And we see it taking place, things taking place in Europe, things taking place in, in England, things taking place in Canada, things taking place here that are, are extremely distressing in terms of the attitude of the culture, the attitude of the government, the attitude of the courts uh, against Christianity. But thank God we have hundreds of thousands of believers, really sharp people who are fighting for us. And we have uh, a number of organizations that provide legal aid. Uh, Liberty Council is one that uh, that comes to mind. There's the Family Research Council. There's uh, a number of others that are out there, and we need to be praying for these organizations and for these people and for the fact that they get money because it takes a lot of money to provide this these uh, pro bono uh, things. I don't know that that uh, I didn't say much about it to the congregation at the time cause we, because we needed to keep it quiet, but this last uh, spring, uh, Chafer Seminary got a letter from the New Mexico Board of Education saying that even though we had been given a temporary and temporary license that we, since we weren't accredited to uh, to give degrees in New Mexico for the last ten or ten or eleven years since we've been there, that we, they weren't going to allow us to do that anymore as of that date. And so uh, John Eidsmo and uh, the organization that he works with, which is uh, uh, related to George Judge uh, Roy Moore in Alabama, Eidsmo uh, spoke here at Chafer Conference five or six years ago, wrote a, just a fantastic letter and cited numerous court cases that have been adjudicated in the last 10 years, always in favor of churches, always in favor of uh, religious schools, that they are not under the authority of the government whatsoever. And thank God the New Mexico uh, Board of Education backed down. And you could tell in the letter that, that they wrote us that the first two-thirds of the letter sounded like we were going to get really bad news. And then he said, well, well after looking at all the, all the evidence, we've decided to give you a temporary, uh, another t- temporary renewal for another year. And if we can get the contradictory language cleaned up in the policies by the legislature, then we'll give you a temporary five-year license. So this is what's happening. We are really under attack, and it just intensifies, and most of us don't have any idea how it is happening or what is going on. So what we need to do is just be diligent, but we need to prepare as believers because there may come a really bad time, and we're just one election away from that really bad time. And we need to be aware of that. And that election is coming up. You can tell by the way that the leftists are fighting and throwing everything they can except arguments and you know actual good information at the president. They're making things up. They're lying about him. They're abusing the law, distorting the law, all kinds of horrible things because otherwise they, they, they're going to lose, and they know that. And so it is incumbent upon every one of us to not just go vote, but to be involved in political campaigns, to be involved in doing something, a little bit, whatever we can do, because we have a battle on our hands, and the other side is marshalling incredible forces and millions, billions of dollars to defeat us. 
And so we need to do what we can do. Pray, yes. It's not pray or. It's not an either or. Uh, it is we need to pray and we need to do what we can do. And then the rest is, or the whole thing really is in the Lord's hands. So that's your con- uh, news for the day and be aware of what's happening in the world and why we need to be involved in the study of the word every single day. It is, the threat is on the horizon. All right, let's open up our Bibles to Psalm 51. And we're going to begin looking at this psalm, which is often called a confession psalm. And indeed, we see elements here uh, related to how to confess our sins. So this comes... Uh, as we saw last time finishing up in 2 Samuel chapter 12, that there we have the actual event where David confessed his sin, and he confesses his sin. Uh, He's confessing to God, even though he's talking to Nathan. Nathan is God's spokesperson, and Nathan, as God's spokesperson, tells David that that God has uh, forgiven him, and God has removed the punishment there. So last time... I had three things I wanted to do, and we only did the first two. There was a review of Nathan's confrontation and David's response in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And then the second thing was to just briefly answer the question, what's the connection between Psalm 51 and David's confession in 2 Samuel chapter 12? Because often you've heard that David's confession is Psalm 51, and that's not accurate. 2 Samuel 12 is the confession. Psalm 51 is David's subsequent reflection on that, pulling out important aspects of it that are part of this psalm. That, and remember, one purpose for the psalm, psalms was to teach and to teach about the Lord. So he, there, it's designed for our instruction and for our teaching, and we'll see how that all pulls together as we, as we go through the psalm itself. And then third, we're going to look at the psalm in verses 1 through 6 of the psalm as David cried out to God for forgiveness. And I just want to emphasize here, as I will several times, that David doesn't receive forgiveness at all in this psalm. This psalm is all about his cry to God, his confession to God. It's all about his turning to God to blot out his sins, to uh, forgive his sins, and to cleanse him uh, from those sins. And when the psalm ends, he doesn't know if he's forgiven or not. There is a, an intensity in this psalm that if you have ever been in a really difficult situation where you have sinned in a horrible way that shocked you and shocked everybody around you, and maybe people around you didn't even know it, but it shocked you, and you knew that if people knew, and God knew, you were in serious trouble, and of course you knew God knew, and you had no idea what was going to happen, and you were just uh, probably overwhelmed with guilt because of something, and that you had done, and God forgave you. And that's how David is in Psalm 51. This, at the beginning, he is talking about his state of mind before uh, he confessed his sin, before 
uh, the confession took place. He's talking about how things were during that time from, from when he finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant. And he goes through the whole um, conspiracy to get Uriah killed. And then he's, going, he's fearful of being exposed in committing these capital crimes where he could be punished by execution. His future's on the line. His life is on the line. This is extremely serious. He has committed two capital crimes, punishable by death. And he is, when he lies down in his bed at night, he is overwhelmed by what he has done. And we're going to see all of that. So it, this, is, this is a picture of what's happening in, in David's soul before he comes to confess and to get forgiveness uh, from the Lord. So we saw back in uh, <clears throat> chapter 12 of Second Samuel, talking about uh, the confrontation with, with Nathan. Nathan comes to him and says, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord. This is after he's gone through the parable and he's identified David as you're the man. And he says, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? He puts it in really harsh terms using the Hebrew word bazaar, which means why have you shown such contempt for God? And the fact is, as I pointed out last time, every time we sin, we're showing contempt for God. And we can't rationalize that away or get, get used to that, that because that's what sin is. It's a violation of God's, of God's standard. And so he says, why have you despised the word of the Lord literally to do evil in his sight? And then he identifies his, his sins, capital crimes, killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you've taken his wife to be your wife, and you killed him using the sword of the people of Ammon. Then he identifies this as evil. Now, this is an interesting word, evil. In fact, yesterday or today I was having a conversation about this. When we look at what's going on in the Garden of Eden, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The word good there is not differentiated in terms of some of its more complex aspects as it is later in the Scriptures. Because we talk sometimes about the good, divine good that the Holy Spirit produces in us versus uh, human good, that which is just the morality that any perverted unbeliever can produce. You look at the moral perversions of the, of the uh, Pharisees. They're very religious. They are all caught up with virtue signaling and showing how righteous they are and how good they are. But that's, that's really a, a form of evil. That's not what's going on. In, it's very simple in Genesis chapter 2. They know what good is because they have been with God. They're living in perfect environment. Once they sin, they're going to see evil in all of its complexities. They're going to see evil in terms of moral evil, and they're going to see evil in terms of immoral evil. So it's not human good versus evil. It is good, divine good, perfect good, righteousness in contrast to all the different shades of evil. And they don't have to be taught it. They are practicing evil from the almost immediately as soon as God came into the garden and they heard the sound of the Lord 
What happened? First thing that happened is they were afraid. Just hearing the sound of righteous God struck fear in the heart of the spiritually dead, spiritually fallen, corrupt sinner that had no life. They are, there's a dread there. It's not just a fear, it is a, an existential dread. God is coming, and this isn't a good thing. And then they tried to make clothes for themselves, cover it all up. That is man just trying to solve his problem through his own efforts. That's comparable to moral good uh, that is not, that, that's not righteous, that is just relative good. So these are the things that are going on here. So um, evil here is used in the sense not of idolatry, which is how it is often used in the, in, in the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, but it is used here in the sense of violating the Ten Commandments, violating the Mosaic Law, because that's what, he, what is enumerated. You've, you've murdered, you've committed adultery. So this is evil. So that's another element of evil. Is Evil is violating God's direct commands. Because in doing that, what's happening inside of our head without us really being conscious about it is that we're setting ourselves up as the ultimate authority of what is right and wrong as opposed to God. That's exactly what Eve did. She set herself up as the authority to determine whether this fruit, she should eat this fruit or not, whether God was telling the truth or not. So that's how evil is used here, specifically in terms of violating uh, the Mosaic Law. And Sam, uh, excuse me, Nathan goes on to say that uh, what the punishment's going to be, the sword's going to never depart from your house. That's the fourfold discipline. And then we get into another element of this, which has to do with the fact that this is not a sin. Neither of these are sins that David can get cleansing from by going to the, to the tabernacle and bringing a sacrifice. It's called an, an, an intentional sin, and there are unintentional sins. We didn't know that was in the law. We didn't realize that's what we were doing. That's all those sacrifices were for the unintentional sins. But in Numbers 15.30, we read, this is in, um, in Numbers 15, but the person who does anything presumptuously. Now, this is a different word. It should have been translated intentionally. That's the idea here. It is literally, in the Hebrew, it is the, a sin of the high hand. Bayad but is the preposition, and yad is a word for hand, like in yad vashem, a hand and a name, uh, the name of the Holocaust Museum in Israel, Rama, which means high, so it's it's presumptuous. It's it's elevating yourself in arrogance and arrogantly sinning against God because you you know it's a sin and you're just going to do it anyway. And we've all done that. We've all done that today. Okay, we do that too often, where we just know this isn't the right thing to do and we go ahead and do it anyway. 
And there's no sacrifice, no means of atonement for that. The this, this sinner just had, in the Old Testament, just had to throw themselves on the grace of God, which is what David does in Psalm 51. Just throws himself on the grace of God. And the other option is once a year on the Day of Atonement, that would provide, uh, provide cleansing. So David confesses his sin when he says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. What's going on in his head that we see from Psalm 51 and from Psalm 32 is his mental thought process is, is directed towards God. He, he's admitting his sin. That's what confession is. It's sort of like the thief on the cross. Think about this a minute. You're, if you're going to give the gospel to somebody, what's the most important word that you're going to use? You better say believe or I'm going to have to go back to the beginning. All right? So the thief is on the cross, and he turns to the Lord, and he says, Lord, I believe in you. Is that what he said? No. What did he say? He said, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He didn't say, I believe, I trust in your substitutionary death now on the cross. What did he what? What did he say? He said, remember when you come in your kingdom. That is the effect, what caused it. He believed in Christ in his thinking between his ears. He realized this was Jesus the Messiah, and he trusted, He believed that. And the result of that internal shift where he believed this was indeed the Messiah, he now turns to him and, and gives evidence of that and says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He wouldn't say that if he thought Jesus was just another thief. So that's the evidence. Belief is what happens between your ears. And so often when we hear people give the gospel, they say, oh, they have to learn the sinner's prayer. They have to say certain things. They have to do certain things. No, all of those things are consequences of something more fundamental, and that is there comes a point in the thinking of the person hearing the gospel when they're thinking, that's true. I believe that's true. And that's the moment of salvation. And that's what's going on with David, is David is thinking, I've sinned against the Lord. I, I've sinned against you, Lord. And so he then are, what he articulates is the result of what's already transferred in his mind, uh, the transaction that has taken place in his mind. And so he tells Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord, and then Nathan tells him that he is forgiven and the sin is taken away from him. Now... One of the things that happens with everybody, difficult concept for a lot of people in our culture to, to get their mental fingers around, is the difference between guilt and guilt feelings. I grew up, as many of you did, and I got a really clear understanding of the difference between guilt and guilt feelings from the time that I was very, very young. And I understood most of what I'm teaching tonight, as you did, uh, from the time, from, from many, many years and many, many decades. I remember when I was pastoring my first church and I started to talk about guilt and guilt feelings. And afterward, I started getting a lot of questions because people had no idea there was a difference. What do you mean? I thought guilt was guilt feelings. That's how most people in the world think about it. Guilt is guilt feelings. No, guilt is an objective thing. If you are driving down the highway and the speed limit is 65, and you're doing 80, you have broken the law, and you're guilty. 
That's an objective fact. How you feel about that may differ, may change from day to day. One day you may get a ticket and it's $500 and you feel pretty bad about that because you don't want to spend $500 on a ticket. And so you feel bad. There's a lot of emotion that goes along with that. Or if it happens frequently, then maybe your license gets threatened. You feel even worse. Those are guilt feelings. The guilt is an objective reality of something that transpires in a courtroom. You break the law, whether it's a misdemeanor or felony, you break the law, you go to court, the judge says, did you do this? And you say, yes, that is an expression of guilt. I am guilty, I did that. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. There may be no remorse, there may be no sorrow uh, at all. And then there might be. And then afterwards, after you've committed some legal infraction, and you've been adjudicated to be guilty, and you get a pun- penalty, and oh, now you really feel bad. And you may feel bad, maybe you hurt somebody, maybe you injured somebody, and so then you have all of these feelings about how horrible, you can't believe you did that, and, and they, they, they chain you like a slave. And you can't move forward because you're just concerned about how badly you, uh, you failed in the past. And so that's, that's the difference. Guilt is the objective violation of the law. Uh, guilt before God is we have violated his character through something we said, something we did, something, uh, something we thought. And then guilt feelings is that when we basically beat ourselves up with remorse and regret because we did something and we really don't like the consequences and we really regret that we did it and we knew it was wrong and it was a big mistake and now we just keep on um, uh, feeling bad about it. When we confess sin, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins instantly. At that nanosecond, we're forgiven and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That happens in a nanosecond. Now, five minutes later when you go, you know, I wish I hadn't have done that. I just don't feel forgiven. Uh, You know, and you beg God to forgive you. You bring it up again and again. Basically, you're saying, God, you're lying. You said you'd forgive me and cleanse me, but I don't believe it. I've got to add to it. I've got to get my emotions wrapped up in this and show you I really, really mean it. And sometimes God is sitting up there going... I don't care how you feel. I just want, all I said was to admit that you did it. Because you're down here groveling in the dirt, and I know you're going to commit this sin another 3,942 times, and you're going to pull this every time, and I don't have, I don't want to deal with it. Have you ever noticed in the Bible? Let's think about this a minute. Isaiah 9, 6. One of the titles for Jesus is what? Wonderful. They're, not, they're two different things. And then counselor. He is the ultimate counselor. Now, I want you to find a place in the Bible when God is speaking to anybody in the Old Testament or Jesus is talking to his disciples you know, Peter is really messed up when he's out there trying to walk on the water. When they got back to shore, did Jesus sit down next to Peter and say, well, Peter, how did that make you feel? 
What's the first thing that comes out of Dr. Phil's mouth? Well, how'd that make you feel? God never asks anybody how it made them feel. Have you noticed that? Either God is a really bad counselor, or maybe it doesn't matter how we feel. Now, you just think about that for a while, because we are such a feeling-oriented society, feeling-oriented culture. And I'm not mean, I don't mean that we just walk all over people's feelings and be insensitive or anything like that. Feelings have their place and they're important. But that's not the issue. The issue isn't how you feel after you've done something really stupid or some sin. Feeling, uh, feeling is, uh, uh, I mean, guilt is dealt with when you confess sin. And then we just, we just move on. We, ha- we put it behind us. This is what Paul says in Philippians 3.13. He says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. What he means by that is I, I haven't arrived yet. I'm not perfect either. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Now, what did Paul have that would have, could have really shackled him with guilt? It is said in the Scripture that he arrested Christians, he had them tortured, he had some killed, he was, he was standing there giving his approval to the stoning death of Stephen uh, in Acts chapter, I think that's Acts chapter 7. And so, so Jesus is, I mean, uh, uh, excuse me, um, Paul has a lot of baggage in terms of sin, murder, tearing families apart, putting Christians in jail. And he could have gotten on one of these trips like, I don't know if any of you ever heard of the Bill Gothard Youth Seminar on Youth Conflicts. I went to one of those years and years and years ago, back in the 70s. And he would teach, one of the things that he would teach is that you, if you've offended somebody, you need to go back Make a list of all the people you've offended. You need to go back and apologize to them. Now, I didn't know anything about, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous at that time, but he he, he didn't get that from the Scripture. He got that from modern psychology. And that's what a a lot of that, a lot of his stuff was. He was just very psychological in the way he was applying these techniques. You need to go back and do, the Bible never says that. It doesn't say it's wrong, okay? But in terms of our spiritual life and our walk with the Lord, that's not the issue. The issue is going to the Lord and confessing to God our sin because even though sin affects other people, sin by its definition is breaking God's rules it's not breaking somebody else's rules. Now, there are some times when we do sin and it affects people around us very badly. And there's nothing whatsoever wrong with going and apologizing and making it right with them. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about r- restoring our walk with the Lord. And we break his rules, then we confess or admit, acknowledge our sin, and then we then we move forward. It's a lot like, I was going to use this illustration, but I don't know tonight. Anybody check the score lately? Anybody out there looking? Four to nothing. nothing. See, the Astros are losing it again. Here's what the illustration. Yesterday, they were just pathetic like they are tonight. 
and they had um, uh, they had uh, uh, what's his name Grinky, Zach Grinky on the mound, and he was supposed to be our hot new pitcher, and he threw started off the first inning a lot like tonight, and uh, we've got Verlander on the on the mound tonight, but uh, Grinky uh, had what three runs batted in in the first inning. Not like tonight. He missed the mark. The Greek word is hamartano in the in in the Greek, the for sin. And it's the word hata in Hebrew for sin. That's what I was pointing out last week is that sin is not this big thing, which is what most unbelievers think, that sin is some kind of horrible, horrible, horrible thing. And if you say I'm a sinner, you're insulting me, you're comparing me to being a mass murderer like this guy they just arrested, discover he's confessed to 91 killings. And so that came out today, and the FBI is uh, trying to find people who know something about about 30 of them they haven't been able to identify trying to uh, close these cold cases. People think that's what a sin is. But a sin in the Bible is just, it can be a thought of arrogance or hatred or resentment or anger. It can be a physical act. It can be just making a judgmental statement about somebody. Uh, we're all sinners. But unbelievers don't understand that. Their concept of sin is something that is really elevated and related to a few very horrible, horrible things, and they think they're basically good. So it's good to just talk, to, if you're talking to an unbeliever, that sin is just missing the mark. It's failing to live up to the standard. And we all do that every day. You go to work, and your boss calls you in and says, well, you made a little mistake here the other day. If he was using Greek, he would have used uh, the word homerton. He'd say, you're, you sinned. You know, we're not going to say that Granky sinned on the mound any more than we would say Verlander sinned on the mound uh, tonight. But if you're talking in terms of biblical language, which is everyday language, that's what they did. They missed the mark. They failed to measure up up to the standard. And that's exactly what the sin nature does. It is that which drives us. And if you're not a believer, then this is the only thing that can drive you is your sin nature, and at the very core are these lusts or these desires that you're constantly trying to satiate to find happiness and meaning and joy and stability in life. And it, the sin nature can produce uh, moral things. Over here on, the, on your left is moral degeneracy. A lot of people don't put those words together. But you get a great example of that in the Bible and the Pharisees. They were very moral. You've got to go to the uh, temple three times a day, pray seven times a day, all of these other things. But that that was moral degeneracy because it was driven by their pride, by their desire to virtue signal. And then you have on the other side the people who are just immoral and have no standards. And it's funny, if you look at a lot of people in our culture today, they're a little bit of both, especially if they're on the atheist secularist side, they have their standards, and they're extremely self-righteous about those standards, and that's why they they hate Christians. And uh, then you have others who just don't care, and they just think that whatever they do is okay. They, they've never been taught absolutes, and so 
they're involved in all manner of sexual immorality and drug use and all kinds of irresponsibility and things that are wrong, but they've never been taught that. So they have to learn that in any kind of uh, situation or circumstance. Now, when we talk about sin, that's critical in looking at Psalm 51 because there are several different words for sin. You have uh, hatha for sin, missing the mark. You have words for transgression, to be rebellious. You have words for, for in, the word for iniquity that also has to do with sin or wickedness, and there's various different synonyms. And so we'll be getting into that as we work our way through the passage. Second thing we looked at last time, what's the relationship of Psalm 51 to David's confession? David is, this is either that night or sometime the week after he realizes his forgiveness with Nathan. And he's thinking about it, and he writes what was writes from the perspective of what was happening, what was going on when he was, uh, before he confessed his sin, when he was beginning to be overwhelmed uh, with, with guilt. He has this very first request that he has at the beginning of Psalm 51 as he just, he's pleading with God. He's he's not he didn't just do some minor infraction. He's got two capital crimes against him and he doesn't know it's going to happen and he is pleading it is intense. He says have mercy upon me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me, cleanse me. He is pleading with God. Now what was his mental attitude before this? Well, if you look over, don't do it, but if you look at Psalm 32, 3 and 4, he gives us a hint. The thrust of Psalm 32 is about his realization of his forgiveness. But he starts at the beginning talking about what it was like when he wasn't forgiven. And in Psalm 32, 3, he says, when I kept silent, he's not admitting to anything. He's hoping it'll all go away. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Harboring that sin in his soul had an impact on his how he felt physically, on his health. He's depressed. He hurt. His bones hurt. His muscles hurt. His body ached. He he lost. He was fatigued. He lost energy. He's he's depressed. My bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. He can't escape the reality of what he did. He's trying to put on a good face, but he knows what's going on. He, he knows he's going to be found out, and he is fearful of what those consequences are going to be. And then he says in verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. He feels like God is just pushing him down. The weight of the sin is getting heavier and heavier every day. And then he says, my vitality, my strength, my energy was turned into the drought of summer. This isn't a pretty picture. And so he now is reflecting on how he was able, because he's confronted by Nathan with his sin, he's able to turn to God And so he is putting into 
poetry in the psalm, which is going to be something that can be used in worship in the temple, he's putting into words the way he was calling upon God to pleading with him to forgive him. And all this language relates to that. So uh, David cries out to God. This is the third thing we're talking about in verses 1 through 6. And it locates the, the uh, superscript here, uh, tells us that, that this is at the time when uh, Nathan the prophet came to him. So it's right after that that he writes out this psalm. So in the first two verses, we have this, this plea where he uses four imperatives. Now, this is, an imperative isn't always an imperative of command. I remember years ago when I was teaching uh, Greek a lot and teaching to a lot of pastors who didn't have any formal training in Greek and trying to help them with tools, the English tools, to get a little more out of the Greek, that I would get these calls. Well, and they'd call me and they'd say, well, this is a, a, an imperative verb here in this prayer. Is he telling God what to do? Because that's what the health and wealth, the name it, claim it crowd does, is you just tell God what to do. And that's just an abuse of the grammar. You have all kinds of different uh, ways an imperative would be used. An imperative is used to issue a command from a superior to an inferior but a, a, an imperative mood can also be used by an inferior to request something from a superior. And so this is called an imperative of request. And so that's what Dave, David is saying here. He's crying out to God and he says, Have mercy upon me, blot out my transgressions, wash me, and cleanse me. And so here in the slide, what I've done is to offset this and use some color to show where the parallelism is. It's sort of an A-B-B-A pattern where A is the first line and the last line and the two lines in between mirror each other in synonymous parallelism. So the first line is mirrored by the last line. Have mercy upon me, O God. So it's directed to God. And the last line is blot out my transgressions. So that is the major request in this prayer. So it's based upon God's grace. So have mercy and blot out are parallel to each other, but blotting out would be the way that God would have mercy. So this emphasizes the request for forgiveness. And the first word, have mercy, is the Hebrew word hanan from the root han, which is the word for grace. And mercy is uh, grace in action. And so what is going on here is that he is calling upon God to be merciful, undeserved favor. So the word hanan means to show favor, to show mercy, to be gracious. It's undeserved kindness. It is what comes from the love of God. So what we see here in these first six verses is David is basing all of these requests on God's essence, on God's attributes, on his character, on his love, and on his justice. And so often people try to set those apart. Well, God can't be love and just at the same time. But we saw a perfect example the other night when I played 
the uh, recordings from what went on in the courtroom up in Dallas of the judge coming down after giving a, a an adequate sentence. Then she came down and after the trial was over, gave the defendant a Bible and explained the gospel to her. That's genuine biblical compassion. Genuine biblical compassion isn't uh, commuting her sentence. She committed a crime and she has to pay the penalty, but the penalty was ameliorated by, by various factors. So have mercy is his primary re- appeal to the grace, to the love of God. And what he's asking God to do is to blot out his transgressions. And that word is the Hebrew word maha. Now, this is a really interesting and picturesque word. In English, we've had this word for a long time to blot out. God is going to blot out my sins. But if you have ever worked with, a, with ink, with an old blotter, Blotting removes the excess ink. It doesn't remove all of the ink. So blotting isn't the best word to use in English. The word really means, in terms of its usage, to eradicate something, to erase it completely or to completely remove it. And we have, I put a couple of examples here of some other passages For example, in Genesis 6, right before uh, God warns, uh, or right when God is warning Noah that he's going to send a worldwide flood, he tells him, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. I will destroy man. That is the word maha here. It is to completely obliterate something, to eradicate it, to scrape it off. It has real literal sense that uh, of scraping something off. For example, if you had started to write on a on a leather scroll and made a mistake. You just scrape everything off so nothing was left of the original mistake. So that's the idea is to scrape it off. Deuteronomy twenty five nineteen. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out. Now just completely eradicate scrape off any memory of Amalek under heaven. You shall not forget. Now that has to do with the physical destruction of human beings. But in Isaiah 43, 25, it applied to sin and forgiveness. I, even I, God is speaking, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I totally erase them. I scrape them off. There's no, nothing left of them. There's, there's nothing to remember. I will not remember your sins. And so when we confess our sin, God scrapes them off so that you come back and say, Lord, I just feel so bad about that. And he says, about what? I don't remember. Why are you remembering? I scraped it off. You're just bringing it up again, so now I've got to write this one down. And we're going to keep scraping it off, and you bring it up again and scrape it off, and you bring it up again and scrape it off. You've got to be like an athlete, and you make a mistake, like the pitcher yesterday, 
uh, grinky and like um, uh, pitcher today, you just have to shake that off and go out, come out the next day and play as if none of that ever happened. Because if you start dwelling on that, then you're just going to compound your mistakes the next day. You have to have a mental focus and mental attitude realizing what God has done. So he appeals to God's mercy according to two things. His loving kindness, which is chesed, a word we've studied a lot, God's faithful, loyal love, and according to the multitude of your tender mercies. This is the word rachamim, which has to do with compassion or the application of God's, God's love. That's his tender mercies. So he calls upon God to have mercy. Uh, that's one word, not the same as tender mercies. He Have mercy according to your standards, your character, your loving kindness, your tender mercies. And then he says, blot out my transgressions. And he uses, this is the first word for sin that he uses, and it's a word that means rebellion against God, that it refers to sin in terms of it is a rebellious act. So every time we sin, it's a rebellious act against God, and we're turning ourselves into our own little God who can control everything and make, make everything uh, work for us. So he appeals to the character of God and uh, asks him to scrape away all of his willful rebellion against God. And we have one use, picturesque use of this word in Isaiah 1-2, where Isaiah is beginning his, his book, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. I'm not going to ask for anybody to raise their hand if they've got a teenager that rebelled against them, okay? Been there, done that, okay? So Psalm 51, 2, he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So we see the parallel, wash in the first line and cleanse in the second line. The first line uses one word for sin, uses the word iniquity, and then in the second line uses a different word uh, for sin. So let's just focus on the first two. These are extremely vivid terms. Wash me is the Hebrew word kabas. I don't always make an issue out of the Hebrew stem, but here it's the pl, which intensifies the stem. And it means to wash, but not just like, okay, I'm going to go in, I'm going to wash my hands, put them under the water, and you go on. This is getting out every kind of brush that you have and getting out all the good soap that you have and really scrubbing hard. Uh, it's, it's sort of the same image of scraping off the sin. And it was used to describe the work of a fuller, the laundryman. And so scrubbing out all of the dirt very actively. Wash me, scrub me is what he's saying. Scrub me clean from my iniquity and cleanse me. That's the other word, tahar. It would be a result. Washing produces the result of cleansing. Cleansing tahar is ritual cleansing. It is used in, the Levitic, in, the, uh, in Leviticus and in the Mosaic law as a synonym for, for cleansing. The, the, the other word that's translated, and this word is too sometimes translated 
with katharizo. That's the Greek word that is translated cleanse in 1 John 1, 9, that we are cleansed of uh, all of our sin and forgiven of all of our sins. So this is the idea. It's, it can be ritual cleansing, but ultimately this is the real cleansing that is taking place. So he's calling upon God to scrub out all of his sin and to cleanse him. And he uses a, he used uh, pesha earlier for transgression, and now he's going to use the word avon for iniquity, and it means to make a mistake, to err, to go astray. That's what iniquity is. So iniquity picks up all this theological baggage, which is good, but when you're talking to somebody who's an unbeliever or you're talking to a child, it's easier to use other language that to err or to make a mistake uh, is to violate God's, God's standards. And then you have the other word, sin, chatat, which means to miss a goal or to miss a way or to miss a, a, um, to miss a path. So he's calling upon God to completely uh, wash him clean. To you know, It's picturesque for when you go down to the river, you're washing your clothes and you're beating all the dirt out of the out of the material, that's the idea. And Tahar has that idea of complete cleansing so that there is a restoration of fellowship, which is how that is used. Once you are cleansed, Tahar, then you are restored to being able to go into the uh, tabernacle. This word chata is used, for example, in 1 Samuel 15, 24, and 25, where Saul says to Samuel, I've sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon, that is the word for forgive, my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And what's interesting here is Samuel confronts him after this and doesn't go with him because of the consequences that, that are going to accrue to Saul because the kingdom is going to be taken taken from him. And so he sees this as a pseudo-confession. First uh, John 3, 4 tells us that sin is lawlessness. This is the Greek uh, noun hamartia. Earlier you said hamartano, which is the verb hamartia, to make a mistake, to fail, to reach a goal. And then we get to verse 3, and this is where we have confession. Now, it's interesting here. He starts off, he says, For I acknowledge my transgressions. Last week I talked about Psalm 32.5. In Psalm 32.5 he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. The Hebrew word is this word yada in both places. It's yada here for I acknowledge, and it is yada here in verse 3, they should be translated differently because the word that is used in Psalm 51.3 is a cow-stem verb. That's sort of your root basic meaning. But the stem that is used over in 32.5 is a hyphial stem, which is the causative stem. So here it has, it's acknowledged, probably a better term for Psalm 32.5, but in Psalm 51.3 saying, he says, but I know my transgression, my rebellion. I know my rebellion. 
And it's more of a, a, a present tense idea here. It's because he goes on to say, it's always in front of me. I, I have good intimate knowledge of my sin. It, it, it's not quite acknowledging it. and It's not a confession yet. It's uh, my sin is always before me. And so these two lines are parallel to each other. I, I know how I have rebelled and my my sin is always before me. So there's the difference between the acknowledge here and acknowledge in Psalm 51. And he says, I acknowledge my transgressions, and that's Peshah, his rebelliousness. He sees what he's done, his rebellion. He says, I know my, my transgressions are always before me. My sin is always before me. So he's fully aware of that. And he goes on now to say, this is where he gets to the confession. He says, against you, you only have I sinned. Because as I've been saying, sin ultimately is against God because it's a violation of God's standard. Secondarily, it may apply to other people, but primarily when it's talking about our relationship with God, we sin against God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil. Notice he uses the same word for evil, that uh, Nathan used over in Second Samuel chapter 12, evil in the sense of violating the commandments, violating the Torah. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak. So he is confessing so that God will respond in justice. So he's appealed to God's love, his chesed love, his mercy and tender mercies, and here to God's justice, that you will be just when you speak and blameless uh, when you judge. So those are the, the two words for sin, are chata and ra for evil. And then just is the word tzaddik, which is a familiar word to us that relates to justice, the application of God's righteous standard, and blameless. shouldn't be translated blameless, and uh, but it has to do with cleansing. It's the Hebrew word zakah, which has to do with being being cleansed from sin. So he and cleansed, you might say, uh, might translate it that way, and cleansed when you judge. So it's very similar to 1 John 1, 9. You appeal to righteousness and God uh, forgives and cleanses us of all sin. And then in verse 5, just to wrap this up, uh, he says, now he talks about the problem. He'll talk about the problem in the next couple of verses. We'll just touch it here. We won't get into uh, the next verse. But what he is demonstrating in verses 5 and 6 is that he sinned because he's a sinner. Now you can go home, write this down, and you can think about this. Are, do you sin because you're a sinner? Are you, are, are you a sinner because you sinned? Do you sin because you're a sinner? Or are you a sinner because you sinned? What David is saying here is he sinned because he's a sinner. We're born corrupt. We're born with a sin nature. We're born spiritually dead. And the result of that is we commit spirit, uh, personal sins. You know, Arminians come along and you're born just like Adam was born. That's the old Pelagian position against Augustine. You're born neutral. And you, when you sin, then you become a sinner. 
But the Bible says you're, we're born sinners. We're born corrupt. We're born totally depraved. That doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be, but have you ever had to teach a kid, an infant, disobedience? Have you ever had to teach any of your children, grandchildren, how to be disobedient? It's natural. It's their sin nature. So that's what David's saying here. Now, there have been some guys. There was a professor used to be really good that's at Dallas. And years ago, he was really good in several positions, including young earth creationism. But now he's gotten, he's flaked out on creationism and he flaked out here and just stunned several of us that what he has this whole theory you may run into and it's just garbage. Uh, this whole theory that David, that David's mother had an affair with Jesse. And so he's born, when it says, I was conceived in iniquity, it was in a sinful relationship. And that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying he's born a sinner. And in sin, his mother conceived him. He's conceived in sin, not because the act was sinful, but because it's when the sin nature is transmitted. And he, you know, this other view is just doesn't hold up whatsoever, and it really has terrible implications theologically. So he's saying here, I sinned because I was born a sinner. And then in verse 6, he'll say, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. And here he's talking about the fact that he is, uh, he he is a sinner, and so he goes on from there. We'll come back and touch on that again next time, and go on into the second part of the of, of the psalm, which will take us down to the end of the psalm. It just has two parts: verses one through six, and then seven through nineteen. Seven through nineteen goes through a lot of the same vocabulary, a lot of the same words, and develops out what we've seen already. So we should be able to wrap this up next time and then get into Psalm 32, which is, I think, a much more joyful psalm because it focuses on the joy of forgiveness. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to recognize that we sin because we are born sinners. And when we do sin, whether they are what we think of as small sins or big sins, They all are acts of rebellion against you. But when we sin, all we need to do is admit it to you, and you immediately forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness and restore us to that very uh, active enjoyment of our relationship with you so that we are walking forward in our spiritual life. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand that as we go through this this psalm and Psalm 32. In Christ's name, amen.